come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 72 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here is going to be my St. Patrick's Day episode number two. As last year I did Leprechaun 2, so of course this year I'm going to do the next one in line here of Leprechaun 3. As well as I couldn't really necessarily find a you know 2021 release, but I decided to do one where it's going to kind of pair up a little bit of a creature feature here with Shadow in the Clouds, as that was one that I heard some podcasts talking about. It sounded interesting, and I'll kind of delve into why I selected it you know more here on this episode. And then I also have a little bit shorter for my mini reviews, as I do have my Odyssey through the Ones film of Gorgo that is from 1961. I watched a short film for a filmmaker that i've watched a lot of what he's done and you know kind of wanted to keep helping him out here of confessions of a haunting and i also do a very you know brief mini review of the grudge from last year of 2020 that i am now giving my second watch to i think that's all i kind of really wanted to get you up to speed with so what i'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to a musical break before i get into those reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me oh father dear and i often hear you speak of Erin's Isle Her lofty scenes, her valleys green Her mountains rude and wild They say it is a lovely land Wherein a prince might dwell Then why did you abandon it? Other oh, reason to me tell My son, I loved my native land with energy and pride Till a blight came over all my crops And my sheep and cattle died The rents and taxes were to pay And I could not them redeem And that's the cruel reason I left old Skibbereen Tis well I do remember the bleak November day 
When the bailiff and the landlord came to drive us all away, they set their roof on fire with their cursed English spleen. And that's another reason I left old Skipperine. Oh, your mother, too, God rest her soul, lay on the snowy ground. She fainted in her anguishing, seeing the desolation round. She never rose, but passed away from life to immortal dreams. And that's another reason I left old Skibberine. Oh, you were only two years old, and feeble was your frame. I could not leave you with my friends, for you bore your father's name. I wrapped you in my coat the more at the dead of the night unseen. And I heaved a sigh, and I said goodbye to dear old Skibberine. Oh, well, father dear, and the day will come when on vengeance we will call. And Irish men, both stout and tall, will rally unto the call. I'll be the man to lead the man beneath the flag of green. And loud and high, we'll raise the cry, revenge for Skibberine. And for my first mini-review for this week is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones film. That is going to be Gorgo. This came out in 1961. This is directed by Eugene Laurie. This comes from the screenplay as well as the screen story of Robert L. Richards and Daniel James. This stars Bill Travers, William Sylvester, and Vincent Winter. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United Kingdom. And it is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, Greedy sailors capture a giant lizard off the coast of Ireland and sell it to a London circus. Then its mother shows up. Now this is one that I never heard of until my mother recommended it. I remember seeing it right after college. And I think it's one she might have seen growing up. But I hadn't seen it since you know that one time viewing. So I decided to give it a rewatch here. Now, what I will say is that it's funny is that looking at my original thoughts from the first time that I saw this, there are some things that still stuck with me. This movie seems like a British take on a kaiju film, and this really does seem like a knockoff of Godzilla. I don't mean that as a bad thing, though, as I think this movie does some good things. This aspect that is where I want to start with. The movie has a social commentary on greed that I picked up on. The synopsis states that both Joe and Sam... I don't agree with that they're both kind of that way. Joe is really the one driving to capture and sell this creature. Now, Sam goes along with it, and he is the one, when things start to fall apart, though, that he wants to make it right well before his counterpart. I'd even say this movie is borrowing from King Kong in this respect, in that they sell it as an attraction. Now, I also like the idea of nature versus humanity here. They, of course, catch this creature that they dubbed Gorgo. They really can't do much to control it, aside from what seems to be like a steel net and then tranquilizers. 
I really like when the much larger parent shows up. No one knows how to kind of stop it, and no matter what they do, they can't, and it really seems like an unstoppable force. There are some of the destruction sequences here in London that does remind me of Godzilla as well. What I really like here is that when Gorgo destroys things like London Bridge, Big Ben, and even the giant Ferris wheel that is there, it just kind of feels like they have these iconic places being trampled with ease, and you know, it's kind of there for the audience to be like, oh, you know, I've been there, I've seen that type thing. Now, since I've been going over this creature, I'll break down the effects. Being from 1961, they didn't have CGI or computers, so everything was done practical. I'm assuming that is a person in a suit. Despite it not looking great or all that real, there is some charm to it, so I will give credit to that. They also have to use miniatures for the destruction of London that I can respect, and it looks better than bad CGI in my opinion. What I did have issues with, though, is some of the green screen that they used. I don't want to say that it was bad, but there are quite a few of them that I could tell, and it just doesn't look great. It might also be the TV that I'm watching on it as well, being a 4K TV. Now, this is just a DVD, but I do have a Blu-ray player that does kind of upscale just a little bit. But other than that, though, I do think the cinematography is fine. And the last thing I want to go over here briefly would be the acting. I don't think that anyone is great, but they do well in being these characters. Travers is solid as this greedy sailor who can convince those around him that it's the best course of action for them to make money. Sylvester works well as his counterpart, who's a bit weaker to peer pressure. I also like his breakdown when London is being destroyed and wanting to release the baby Gorgo. Winter is solid as the boy, and I think the rest of the cast rounds us out for what was needed, in my opinion. So in conclusion here, I think that this is a solid ripoff of Godzilla. This does feel like it's also taking parts from King Kong, as well as making this movie feel really British. The acting isn't interesting enough characters around the giant monsters that we get. There is some interesting and relevant social commentary. thought the effects have some slight issues, but nothing that really ruins it for me. And the soundtrack is also fine for what was needed, and the sound design, especially from the creature, works. Overall, I'd say this is an above-average movie. It is a fun, especially if you like kaiju movies, but don't come in expecting too much. So my rating here for Gorgo is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And then up next I have for you is a film that the writer and director of Andrew J.D. Robinson had reached out to me, and this is a short film that he has made, and it's Confessions of a Haunting. This is from 2021. It is a short drama horror that is from Canada, and I've seen quite a few of Robinson's shorts, and even his feature-length debut last year of We Are the Missing. I really dig what he's doing and always like to help out independent filmmakers, and this is really just a micro short here. It runs about three minutes long, and it has Anna, who is Julie Mainville, speaking directly to the camera. She is talking about loss, and one of the strongest lines in her monologue is, horror is afraid of losing something. True horror is knowing what you've lost. Something. There is something spooky at the end of this, but it feels more in the vein of what you get with gothic horror while having a definite modern feel. Now, the biggest thing here, I would have to say, is the acting. Mainville really can be herself. It is so short that she doesn't necessarily need to establish her character, but I think she does well in her line delivery. Aside from that, we learn that she is a mother in this short time and that she is dealing with the loss as well. It is pretty impressive to get all of this across in such a short time, in my opinion. Now, there's not a lot, of, a lot else that I can delve into with this short, so what I will say is that I think that this has an interesting commentary on not neglecting what we have in our lives to lament those that we have lost. It is really about breaking the cycle, and like I said, if you're able to convey this in such a small amount of time, then you're really being pretty effective in your visual storytelling here. There's potential to flesh this out more something longer, and it would fit in the stories that Robinson likes to tell. So this short is just another reason why I will continue to watch whatever he does, and a short like this is hard to give a rating to, but I think that it's strong for what we get, 
So my rating here for Confessions of a Haunting is going to be a 7 out of 10. And also in the show notes, I'm going to try to have the links where you can watch this as well to help out Robinson since, you know, he always reaches out to me when he has something new for me to review. And then the next film I have for you is I rewatched The Grudge from 2020. This is directed by Nicholas Pesci, who also wrote the screenplay. Now, he also came up with the story along with Jeff Bueller. And then this is based on the film Juan The Grudge that was written by Takashi Shimitsu. This is a fantasy horror mystery film that is a co-production between the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 4.3 on IMDb and a 1.6 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis is a house is cursed by a vengeful ghost that dooms those that enter it with a violent death. Now this one I have a featured review of on episode number 10 so i'm not really going to delve into too much here what i am going to do is just kind of give a few more thoughts after the second viewing but i do think that this movie would have been better served if it it's a sequel that is to the american remake i believe and my problem that ends up becoming is that they change a lot of the curse around and i think it would have been better if they would have done just a straight remake if that's what their plan was from the beginning because when you make this one of those kind of remake sequels it doesn't work as well when you start to change as major of things as they have here what i do think though is i do like the callbacks that we have in this movie especially when there's stuff to you know that original or that first remake that we had that was the american remake that is and then what i also like here is that we have these complex characters like we get with Muldoon and her son dealing with the loss of her husband and his father. I like that we're seeing the breakdown of her and diving into this case to avoid dealing with her own grief. She's also missing out on her son because of it. And then the Lynn Shea character of Faith, she needs doctor's care and her husband is trying something risky to help her. Then we have the John Cho who is Peter and then there's Betty Gilpin who is Nina. I love that they realize their baby might have a condition and that it could take down their quality of life. I just think with all these different things, I'm invested in these characters, and that's one thing Pesci does here, is that I really care about what happens to them, and I think that works. I just don't necessarily know if how he set up the story with the non-linear timeline works as well, because I don't think it's as strong as the original story that we get, and how everything pieces there, but I also don't think this movie is nearly as bad as everybody is making it out to be. I think there's some good aspects of the story. I don't mind bringing this to the United States and making it a somewhat sequel remake. Some of the changes to the story work for me, but there are just some things that don't. I think this would have worked better if they would have just started fresh as opposed to what they did here. As I have my issues, as I said, with changing the curse, the acting is strong and the editing and the non-linear story can get a bit confusing. I like it incorporating it. I just don't think it works as well as the original or the American remake. The effects were fine. And I also thought the sound design was quite effective. Overall, I think this still is just over average for me, but there is some untapped potential here that makes it fall short. So I have stuck with my same rating that I had the first time I saw this. For the grudge that's from 2020, I think this is a 6 out of 10 in my opinion. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. I know it is a little bit shorter, but what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Las Vegas, a gambler's dream and a dreamer's paradise. They're all about to meet their worst nightmare. Look out, Vegas. I'm taking over! Now, the leprechaun's back in the city that never sleeps. Hello, 
And he will never rest until he reclaims his pot of gold. Belongs to me, this gold I smell. Whoever's got it's going to hell. I want me shilling. Hello? If we destroy the gold, we get rid of the leprechaun once and for all. Leprechaun 3, the third time's the charm. And for my first featured review for this episode is going to be Leprechaun 3 from 1995. This is directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith, and it comes from characters based upon that were created by Mark Jones, and then the screenplay was written by David DuBose. This stars Warwick Davis, John Gettens, and Lee Armstrong, while also featuring... John D. Mitta, Michael Callan, Carolyn Williams, Marcello Tubert, Tom Dugan, Lee Allen Baker, Richard Reichig, Linda Shane, Ian Gregory, Roger Hewlett, Terry Lynn Crisp, and Jennifer Stein. This is a comedy fantasy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.4 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being an evil leprechaun finds himself in Las Vegas, where he proceeds to cause mischief by killing people, granting twisted wishes, and infecting a young man with his green blood. Now, what I find interesting here is that this is a sequel that I've seen more than any other film in the series. My sister and I had the original and the second one. You know, we had seen it before this, and then we bought this one on VHS. Warwick Davis was also an actor that I knew before seeing any of these movies thanks to the film of Willow, you know, which is one of our childhood favorites. I decided since that this next film in line to watch critically from the series, it would be a featured review here for my St. Patrick's Day episode, of course. So before I jump into my recap and analysis, I do have some featured notes here where our director of Trenchard Smith has been in charge of 43 films it appears he specialized in more of these low-budget efforts. Of these, eight have been horror films. His first was Turkey Shoot from 1982, which I have been meaning to see but haven't yet. He followed that up with Dead End Drive-In from 1986, another one that is on my list. He's also done Out of the Body, and then a stretch of three that I have seen starting with Night of the Demons 2, this movie here, and Leprechaun 4 in Space. The last two that he's made that I haven't heard of are Atomic Dog and Sightings Heartland Ghost. Our writer here of DuBose has four feature films to his credit. This is the only one that I've seen. He did have one other horror film, which was called Future Shock, from the year before this movie was made. And then our star here of The Creature is Warwick Davis, of course. Thanks to Star Wars and the Harry Potter series, he's one of my most seen actors. He's also one of the most famous little people actors of all time. He's been in 61 films total. Of them, nine of them are in the horror genre. His first was, of course, Leprechaun, and then he's been in every film from the series until Leprechaun Back to the Hood was his last one that he was in there. Now, he was also in a movie I've seen called Skin Deep, and then he was also in Small Town Folk and St. Bernard, which I've never heard of either of those two. Then we have an interesting actor here of Gattons. He has 14 credits. Three of them are in horror. His first that he was in that I've seen, which was Witchboard 2, The Devil's Doorway. He then went on to do Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings, which I don't think I've seen that all the way through. And then he was, you know, in this movie here. Now, what is interesting, though, is that as a screenplay writer, he's behind Kong Skull Island, Flight, Coach Carter, and Real Steel, just to name a few from his, you know, majors that he's penned, which is kind of impressive that, you know, this kind of independent little actor here went on to do such great things behind the screen. 
Then there's Armstrong. This was her last film as an actress. And the only other one that she was in was Follow That Bird, which was a Sesame Street film, which I do kind of find interesting there. So jump into this movie here. We start off with this man coming into a pawn shop in Las Vegas. I don't recall the movie ever giving us a name for him, but I'm going to go out on a limb and assuming, looking at the credits here, that he is Lucky, who is portrayed by Raichig. He has a hook for a hand and he's missing a leg. And then the guy running the place is Gupta, who is portrayed by Tubert. And he's trying to see what this guy is selling. Inside is a leprechaun statue of this duffel bag that looks to be made out of wood. Now there's a medallion around its neck. Gupta goes to take it off and the man warns him against doing that. Gupta pays $20 for the statue and immediately takes off the necklace after Lucky leaves. Little does he know that this makes the leprechaun come to life. And then the leprechaun, of course, being played by Davis. Gupta is then attacked, using the medallion to ward off the creature and sending it into the warehouse in the back of his store. The movie then shifts us over to Scott, who is portrayed by Gattins. He's on his way to Los Angeles, where he's going to be going to school out there. He was given a check for $23,000 that is supposed to cover rent and tuition until he gets on his feet. On his way, he has decided to detour to Las Vegas. Being so engrossed in the lights and all of the sights, he almost hits Tammy, who is portrayed by Armstrong, who is broken down on the side of the road. Scott gets out and tries to help this snarky young woman, but her car won't start. So he ends up giving her a ride to the casino that she works at as a magician's assistant. Now, she has dreams, though, of being the headliner. Once they arrive, Scott asks her to sneak him in to see what it's like in there. Because, of course, you have to be 21 even back then to get into casinos and gamble. And he's only 18 at the moment. She agrees, but only when he promises not to gamble. That doesn't work out, though. Now, her boss is Mitch, who is portrayed by Callan. And he questions at first if Scott is 21 until he sees the size of the check that he has. He allows Scott to, you know, cash it in and gets chips and is, sends him over to a roulette table that is ran by Loretta, who is portrayed by Carolyn Williams. She's a woman who's a little bit older and her body isn't what it used to be. We see that her game is rigged and she cleans out Scott pretty fast. He's a sucker and she convinces him to go to the pawn shop across the street and use his watch in order to, you know, try to get some more money to try to win back what he's lost. This, of course, is a trap. By the time he arrives at the pawn shop, Gupta is dead. Scott finds a gold shilling from the leprechaun's pot of gold and uses it to wish that he was on a winning streak back at the casino. Each piece of gold allows the holder one wish. Now Mitch is upset with Loretta and wants her to get the money back because he has won all of his money back and then some. To the tune of 100 grand I think is what it ends up totaling before the table is shut down. Now together with the not so great Fazio who is portrayed by Demita, who is the magician that is at this casino. They do what they can to try to steal that money. All the while, the leprechaun is free in Vegas and trying to get back what is his, which is this missing shilling. This creates an interesting situation when he bites Scott, and then Scott stabs him in the forehead, causing blood to get into his wound, and Scott might actually be changing into a leprechaun himself. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, and where I want to start would be that I have a lot of fun with this one. Like I said with the previous movie, so if you listen to my St. Patrick's Day episode from last year, I don't believe we're seeing the same leprechaun from the previous film. They have the same actor, and they just kind of look alike, but there's always going to be something different lore with each one of these from what I remember. So for this leprechaun, there is this medallion that wards him off, and there's also a different way to defeat this creature here. This is a little bit problematic, but I mean, I'm not going to hold it too much against this movie because it is a low-budget straight-to-video from, you know, 1995. Now, I'm completely fine with these movies, though, ever since hearing JP shot from the 22 shots of moods and horror bring this idea up. So far into the series, none of these movies have continuity with the one prior to that, so I can enjoy these movies as standalone films, despite them being, you know, in a series and this one being the third installment. 
It is interesting as it doesn't hamstring itself with needing to bring up characters or events in my opinion though. Now to move away from this idea, I love the setting here. Having a greedy creature like a leprechaun and setting it in Las Vegas is great to me. From what I saw in the trivia, this is also Davis' favorite in the series as they let him open it up a little bit more with the humor. I can also see the direct correlation here to things like A Nightmare on Elm Street where they wanted the killer to have a little bit more personality. There is always humor built into this series. I mean, the creature alone is a little person who has, you know, magical powers and everything like that. And I mean, I know from lore, I don't think these are supposed to be that evil of creatures, but, you know, I can digress with that. But I think this movie does it best from what I remember. Or the ones after this one, because I know the ones prior to this one, this is the funniest for me. I like that some of the kills incorporate things from the people, and I think that's just clever for me. Now, I will say, though, that not all the comedy works here. I think there are a few jokes that run a bit too far. An example here is when Scott is in the hospital. The doctor and the nurse are going through his things, and they find his stacks of money. This gag doesn't necessarily work for me, unless the movie is really trying to point out that how evil Vegas is and can make people to, you know, do horrible things, like they're going to try to rob this guy so they can, you know, run tests and they can make money off of him. Not that I don't think that our healthcare system does things like this, I just don't feel like they would do it in the way that we get here. I think that all the poems and little rhymes that this leprechaun uses are great though. I'll be honest, I might not fully understand all of them, but I think they are creative and they allow Warwick to kind of use a little bit more of his personality here as well. Speaking of which, I want to go to the acting. Davis is just perfect for this role. He brings enough acting ability to be menacing while also being great at delivering these little quip lines that we get here. I would put him up there with Robert England when it comes to the killer being witty. Gatton's as solid as this young guy who is green when it comes to life experiences and then almost being swallowed up by this dangerous you know, place of gambling in Las Vegas. I love that he loses all of his money so quickly and it made me anxious to be honest. Armstrong is quite attractive. I love the outfit that they have her in for the most of this movie. She also does well in being this jaded performer despite how young she is. I'm not a fan though of her over the top performance when she's under mind control from a wish. And then I would say that Demita, Callan, Tubert, Tom Dugan, and the rest are fine in their minor roles. I do want to shout out to having Carolyn Williams in this movie. She's a solid actress and I like the role that she has in this movie. Her along with the rest are solid enough for me. Then really the last thing I would like to go into here would be the special effects, the cinematography, and the soundtrack. I really like that the practical effects that we get here. I don't really think that there's a lot of CGI here and most of what we get here holds up. There are a couple things here and there where I could tell that they were fake, but I love that they actually attempted it. Now the cinematography is fine. I don't really have any glaring issues here, except there was a scene where I saw the boom mic. So I do have to, you know, kind of chuckle about seeing that. I also like the incorporating the music that you would hear in Las Vegas that is quite flashy along with this traditional Irish music, you know, to blend the elements here. Cause we do have this mythical creature from, you know, Ireland. So just some bits of trivia here before I close out this review is that as I was saying, Davis said this is his favorite of the series because he liked the humor in it. He thinks that it tapped into the potential of bringing in a comedic element to it all. And then the director is an incredible one and he you know, managed to get so much out of so little money and that's just what makes this movie great and working with him. And he really got the humor that they were going for. This was filmed in just 14 days. It became the highest selling direct-to-video film of 1995. Warwick Davis actually makes a cameo without makeup playing a slot machine, which I think is cool. As I said earlier, Armstrong quit acting after this movie. According to an article in Fangoria, issue number 131, this movie was the first to be considered for a 3D release. By the time the movie began production, the idea was abandoned, though. Uh, the leprechaun shilling bears the imprint of Charles III of Spain. The check that Scott carries around in the casino is signed by the director. The first film in the series to be direct-to-video. Now, there is a cameo here of Merle Kennedy, Zoe Trillin, 
and Rod McCary, and they can be spotted in the casino. And also, the Rod is dressed as his priest character in homage to Night of the Demons 2, and that's where these three all work together. Mitch tells Tammy that she's fired and she'll never get a job in show business again, which is kind of weird that she never acted after this film. Now, there was an original plot to this that was a little bit different. I'm not going to go into all that because it is very lengthy. If you are interested, though, it is listed on, in the trivia for on the IMDb page for this movie. So, in conclusion here, this is still my favorite in the series. That isn't saying a lot, though, as I feel the original one is solid enough and the sequel is a little bit of a step back. This one does feel like they're opening it up and letting the leprechaun creature be more of itself. The acting is good enough. The effects are surprisingly well done, and I like what they did with the soundtrack to fit the movie. Don't come in expecting anything great, as I think that this one, you know, the comedy works well enough to carry the movie with some of the horror elements, but it does go a bit far at times with the comedy. Not necessarily in a bad way, it just doesn't necessarily work for me. So I would say this is an above average movie for me. I would say Leprechaun 3 is a 7 out of 10. And that's all I really want to delve into. There's not really a whole much more I need to kind of go into for spoilers, so I'm going to avoid doing that. And what I am going to do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Where's the fool's errand? You doing here? I'm commissioned to this flight. Captain! We haven't got time for this right now. Put her in the sperry until we get up in the air. I'm supposed to guard this. I'll guard it for you. Contents are confidential. What's your name, honey? Flight Officer Garrett. Ain't no women in the air corps. I'm a flight mechanic and a pilot. You're not a pilot. You're a delivery girl. <laughs> Sir, requesting permission to fire on an enemy attacker. You wouldn't even know how to fire a gun. I was being polite. She hit it! She was right! Who the hell are you, Miss Garrett? What is she here for? Did you hear that? What the hell is that racket? There's something on top of the plane. Something on the goddamn charge! Yes, ma'am. And for my second featured review here, I have Shadow in the Cloud from 2020. But it is getting its 2021 full release as it did come out as one of the first ones to hit some of the theaters as well as on the streaming platforms and VOD as well. Now, this is directed as well as co-written by Roseanne Liang who also had some help in the writing this with Max Landis, and that is the son of John Landis. 
And then the stars Chloe Grace Moretz, Nick Robinson, and Beulah Coyle. Then this also has Taylor John Smith, Kalen Mulvey, Benedict Wall, Byron Cole, Joe Witkowski, Liam Legay, and Asher Bridal. This is an action horror war movie that is from a co-production of New Zealand and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a female World War II pilot traveling with secret documents on a B-17 flying fortress encounters an evil presence on board the flight. Now, this is a movie that I was intrigued when I saw that was coming out. I like period piece horror movies, and especially ones that are set in World War II. There's also this interesting aspect of it being a potential creature feature with lore that was used about gremlins and how they destroy machinery during the era. Plus, I'm a fan of Chloe Grace Moretz as well. So this was originally going to be my first horror movie of 2021, but it had one of those really high price tags to rent, and I wasn't really hearing great things at first, so I decided now that it's came down, I would finally give it a viewing here. But before I jump into the movie, let me do some featured notes really quick. Now, the director of Liang is relatively new to the scene. She has six films to her credit so far. It appears that she's of Chinese and New Zealand descent, which makes sense why this movie is set there. In New Zealand, that is. Of course, she only has this one that I've seen and in the horror genre. Now, she did double duty here with helping to pen the screenplay. As a writer, she only has four credits, but much like as a director, this is the only horror project and only one that I've seen. Now, her co-writer here of Landis is, as I said, the son of John Landis, and he has 14 credits at this time. His first in genre was working with his father with the movie Dear Woman, one of the Masters of Horrors episodes from 2005. He then wrote something with a bite, this, and he is slated to remake his father's An American Werewolf in London. Aside from this movie, I have seen Chronicle, which I liked, as well as Victor Frankenstein, which I thought was alright. Now, our star here of Moretz has 59 credits as an actress. Of those, 11 have been horror movies. Her first was the remake of the Amityville Horror, and she was in a movie called Wicked Little Things that was from the eight films to die for, and I did enjoy that one. She's also done quite a few remakes that I've seen, like The Eye with Jessica Alba, Let Me In, which is, you know, the take on Let the Right One In. She was also in Carrie and Suspiria. Now, I've also seen her in movies like Kick-Ass, Dark Shadows, Movie 43, and Kick-Ass 2, just to name a couple of them, as I've seen a little bit more than that as well. Then her co-star of Robinson has been in 21 films. I've seen three, and those are Jurassic World, Kong Skull Island, and then now this movie here. This being only his technical horror movie that he's ever been in, though. And then finally, we have Coley. Now, he's been in seven movies, and this is the only one in horror and the only one that I have seen. Now, the synopsis shies away a little bit from this being a creature, but the movie itself doesn't. We get a cartoon, which I'm not sure if this was a real or not or just made for the movie, but it explains a bit about the lore. It was believed that there were gremlins that would destroy machinery, and the cartoon is explaining that in reality it was due to like laziness or the lack of care when doing their work. It is really trying to explain that you keep your area clean, take pride in your work, and there won't be any mishaps. We then learn that we're on the Auckland Air Force Base back in 1943. Maud Garrett, who's portrayed by Moretz, has her arm in a sling and is carrying a top secret document. She gets on board of a plane by the name of the Fool's Errand, which is interesting for how this movie plays out. Her getting on board the plane makes the crew very uncomfortable. I think part of this is that her being a woman, and the other part is that they were not notified, and they're getting ready to take off. They do accept it as an important high-ranking officer seemed to have signed off on it. 
there isn't a place for her so the top secret package that she is carrying is going to be kept in the cockpit with walter quaid who is portrayed by smith and she goes on into the sperry turret underneath the plane they take off and maud can hear all the chatter from the crew on the communication system it is through this that she learns who each one of them are as they talk dirty about her there's Stu beckle who is portrayed by robinson who is the tail gunner we have anton williams who is coley who is the co-pilot we have john reeves who is mulvey who is the pilot there's terence taggart who's portrayed by cole as the communications officer there's bradley finch who is witkowski and that is the navigator and then we have tommy dorn who is wall and he's the worst with his mouth and is just a private she shuts them up though when she responds and to you know what they're saying about her things get worse when she thinks that she sees a creature on the underside of the wing she tries to warn them but no one believes her another of the crew sees an enemy plane which she also sees this it turns out that she's right and is quite skilled with the turret not everything though is true about her she gets trapped in the Sperry and is attacked by the creature. The men don't trust her and push for the truth, and it is hard to kind of believe what she's saying when she's lied about some things. So when the plane starts to fall apart, is there really a creature here, or is something else the cause of this, and is she kind of just going crazy? Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap for this movie, I don't want to spoil it, as this movie is still fairly new. So to start breaking it down, I'll get into what I liked. I'm not surprised to see that a woman directed this. There's a bit of empowering here since we do have Maud, and I wasn't sure if they were allowed into the Air Force at this time, but then seeing this movie that was in you know New Zealand, I was a little bit more forgiving. From the footage at the end of the movie though, it does seem like they were allowed into the Air Force in some capacity. This movie does have a social commentary on misogyny in my opinion. I do think the movie does go a bit over the top with it, but to be honest, a lot of this probably is true. Or at least that's how the times were. This movie was set in a different time as I was saying, so let's be honest, we really haven't come that far, or at least as far as we should have by now. What I will say is, as a negative here, is that there is a reveal to this movie that I think sets this character back, and I think they could have come up with a better reason, in my opinion, for what they, you know, kind of explain things here. Now what I really want to get into about this movie is the idea of the creature. One of my earliest memories of Gremlins as a creature is from, you know, obviously the classic Gremlins. What is interesting is in that movie, Mr. Futterman brings up the lore that this movie has. They are creatures that get into your machines and destroy them. In that classic, he blames the Japanese for putting them in there, of course, and I think a lot of that was he probably served in World War II. It is also interesting that I heard a review on the Exploding Heads horror movie podcast where they paired this up with a different versions of the Twilight Zone episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I can see why they did the pairing as this does seem to borrow at least somewhat from that source material especially with this creature here and some of its like features that it has this is something that i wish the movie would have focused a little bit more on in my opinion now the last part of the story that i want to delve into is having Maud get stuck she's told to leave the sperry but then when she tries to pull the handles they break off she does get a bit panicky which i can't blame her there because it's a little bit claustrophobic feeling this also seems to be a bit of a plot device she is trapped down there while the creature is attacking the ship it does make the focus more on her. The men are really only voices that we are hearing for a good portion of this. I don't mind this to an extent actually, and I also think it limits what they can do as well though. Now where I think I'll go next would be the acting. As I've said already, I've been alluding to this, is we really are on the back of Moretz as for her acting. I think she's solid here. I've said I'm already a fan, 
and you know just in general here she does well with being this strong woman who is attractive enough and deals with these men acting like children robinson is fine as beckel now, i'd say that the rest of the guys are mostly just voices but they do well in making distinct characters where i can tell who each one is just by listening to them and that's all i can really ask for as well and really the last thing i want to go into here would be the effects there were quite a few that i could tell were with green screen and it's what it is so i'm not going to be too tough on it as it would be you know too difficult to do practical things i'm forgiving there the creature for the most part is fine and another thing that doesn't look great but i like its design my biggest issue here though is something that happens where Maud is moving around underneath the plane while it is moving. I don't believe that can happen as it does here. It is getting a bit slower as it's losing altitude, but I'm not up on the physics to see if this is possible or not, but I don't buy it, so until I kind of hear otherwise, it kind of takes me out of the movie, I'm going to be honest. So before I close everything out here, I do want to share just a little bit of trivia that we have. It does appear that Landis had originally written the screenplay and then the director due to some sexual harassment allegations made against the writer did some rewriting here which does make a lot of sense as i said for some of the changes that we have the cartoon in the beginning i guess is actually based on a adult oriented instructional shorts that were meant to educate enlisted personnel on army discretion hygiene combat readiness and daily life so it's kind of a cool thing looks like they were doing these between 43 and 45 and then one of the big things I wanted to share here is that Maud mentions that she's a member of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, which is the WAAF, and has logged 200 hours with the Air Transport Auxiliary, the ATA, flying into combat zones over the Pacific. This is despite the fact that these members did not fly into combat. So it does seem like there is a little bit of truth here, but there's also some things that are stretched here for the movie, which is fine. So then in conclusion here, this movie is really has a good premise. And I like that we get this set, you know, where we do. Moretz is a solid enough actress to carry this movie with the misogynistic men that are holding her back. I even like the reveal of the creature and what becomes a major part of the tension. My problem is that they focus on and this movie does hurt it. It also seems to be setting back women from some of the reveals that are in later in the movie. The effects though are solid enough, but I don't buy the climax personally. The soundtrack is also fine, where I think the sound design is one of the best parts of this movie and was really good, especially because a lot of the men in this are just voices for a good stretch of it. Overall, I'd say this is an over average movie for me, and I just have some issues with some things that I can't go any higher. I think some changes would have made this, you know, potentially really good in my opinion. So for this movie here, Shadow in the Cloud, I'm going to come in with a 6 out of 10, and I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think there's anything I need to delve into. I think the movie's a little bit shallow to not have anything that I can really kind of, you know, sink my teeth in and need to go any deeper than I have. So what I am going to do, though, is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Just before the parade 
welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to be read on the show you can send me an email at journey with a cinephile at gmail.com if you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones it's reviews of the dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on facebook it's david mishkin garrett jr on twitter i'm buckeye from mish letterboxd i'm david osu Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And I will have all of those links in the show notes just to make it easier on you to find. And the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And also if you could rate and review just so that way I can get out in front of more listeners as well as you know try to making this the best show possible. So then on the next episode, it's going to be my Odyssey through the ones. It looks like number two for that. As I'm going to watch, I believe the 1931 movie that I'm going to watch is Murder by the Clock. I think it's something along those lines is the title. And then I'm also going to watch Bloody Hell as the 2021 release as kind of looking through it. I don't necessarily think it pairs up as well as I would like, but I do think it kind of makes an interesting double feature there. And then, of course, I'll throw in some, you know, mini reviews on top of that as well. I think that's all I really needed to get you up to speed with before I close this out here. So what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 